Remember in the Old Testament that um, Abraham's nephew gets taken as a POW, and Abraham goes looking for him, launches a rescue effort, and uh, goes and rescues him and obtains a great victory. And obtaining that victory on his way home with the spoils, he bumps into a guy named Melchizedek. There's nothing in the story that prepares us for Melchizedek. He comes out of nowhere. You know, Abraham has been called out to, to establish a people for God's own name. And here Abraham, the beginning of this effort, bumps into a priest of the Most High God. Where did he come from? And where does he go? I, Abraham gives him a tithe of all of his spoils and, and, uh, and, and, and Melchizedek blesses him as his greater. And Abraham, greater than Abraham, the father of faith. Where did Melchizedek come from? Where does he go? There's nothing in the story that prepares us for Melchizedek. And then he leaves. There's nothing in the story that tells us where he went and what happened after that. He just is. The wise men are a lot like Melchizedek. There's nothing in the story that prepares us for them. Where do these guys, in a sense, come from? Who are they? And then they're gone. And where did they go? And what happens after that? They're just sort of these enigmatic figures that show up in the story. And yet we have some things I think we can learn from them. And that's what I want us to do this morning is to take a fresh look at the story and, and just a few things that we can learn from these uh, enigmatic wise men. We're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Hear then the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Check it out. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Where is the Christ to be born? And they told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written in the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him... Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Sorry. <laughs> so that I too may come worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest on the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with a great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. And they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word that is living and true. And we come this morning as we travel through this Advent season 
remembering the great gift you have given, this amazing thing that you have done, the coming of our God in flesh, the birth of this baby, veiled in flesh, the Godhead we see. Father, as we come now and as we look at these wise men and those events that surrounded his birth, grant us wisdom in our own lives as we approach the day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, in our family Christmases, somewhere along the way, we, we had heard a, a tradition and we began it in our own home. And we have a little manger that we've had since the kids were little, just a little manger. And at some point in time, as that manger got set up in the first part of December, like now, uh, in the manger, there's, there's no baby Jesus because he's not born yet, right? So we're anticipating, and so he's removable. So he's not in the manger yet. Um, and, uh, and the wise men aren't there either. And if you look around our house during the Christmas season, you would find them in different places on their way, right? So, you know, they might be on the kitchen table this morning. You know, the kids come up, and they're like, oh, the wise men are here, you know. But then the next day, they're on the kitchen counter. You know, the next day, they made it to the dining room, and now they're on the, th- you know. And they're, because they're on their, their way, you know, and then Christmas Day comes, you know, and they're like everybody assembles. And, but anyway, it's just the way we do it. How many wise men were there? We don't, we don't know. Do you know that? We don't know. The word there is magi. It's plural of magus. Um, and, it, and it's plural, so we know there's at least two. But that's it. After that, we don't know if there's two or a hundred. Uh, right? There are three gifts. And so because there are three gifts, traditionally we think, oh, maybe there are three magi, maybe three wise men. Uh, but we really don't know. Maybe, maybe there were two, and one had the gold, and the other had the frankincense and myrrh. Right? Or maybe, you know, these were just the three designated to carry the gifts because they're heavy, and, you know, but there were eight. I mean, we just don't know. What kind of transportation did they use? Did they walk? Did they ride horses? Did they get... Were they kings? We three kings of Orient are? We can't be certain, but they're probably not kings. They're probably not, not in the, any traditional sense of the idea of being a king. What nationality are they? pretty sure they're, they're not Jewish, at least not purely Jewish. They're probably Gentiles or at least of some mixed background. And what is a Magi anyway, right? What, who are, what are these guys? But one thing is abundantly clear, and the translation that we have is right in the sense that these are wise men. That much is true and absolutely certain. They're wise men. Because there are men that set out to find and worship Jesus. And they are wise. The promise was set before them. And they risked it all. They left their homes and set out on a journey to find Jesus. A journey that was set in motion in in a very real sense by the promise of Christmas. The promise of the birth of Christ was set before them. And they knew that much. And it put them on the road. So we have the promise. As we look at this, I want to say the, the promise that these men embraced. And the different ways that we would be wise in following them. The promise that they embraced. The worship that they gave or rendered unto Jesus. And the journey that they embarked on. 
The promise, his star was a promise calling them out of their homes. It rose, it says, we saw his star rise. And so we have set out and come to worship them. It hung before their eyes, beckoning them to follow. These wise men, I said, the word underneath it in the Greek is magi. That's the plural of magus. If you've heard of a magus or magus, uh, it is a word that we get magician from. And so we have magicians or sorcerers or wizards or whatever words you put on it is a word that, that is connected to it. Uh, Michael Card, one of my early favorite musicians uh, back in the 80s when I first became a Christian, he actually had a song in, in, uh, that he caught a lot of flack for because in it he referred to these guys as the starlit wizards who came to see, right? They followed the star, these magi, the starlit wizards. What are magi? They were a high and priestly caste in the Persian Empire and possibly in the, in the Babylonian Empire before them, that there was a priestly class that, that also bordered on magicians and things that they could do. So hereditary priesthood. You know, the Jews were exiled into Babylon, as you remember in the Old Testament, and Daniel and his friends find themselves in a Babylonian court. And it's in that context that the king is having dreams and he wants someone to interpret the dreams and so what he calls all the court seers. These are high-ranking folks who have the presence of the king. They're very probably the magi. They're probably those who have access in the court who are supposed to interpret the king's dreams for him. And it's notable in that context that they couldn't and Daniel could and God gives him the interpretation of the dreams so Daniel's elevated, he becomes highly regarded among the magi, the priest cast of the court before the king. And so the magi and others around them in the courts would have learned from Daniel and learned from the Jewish exiles. They would have learned much about the one true God of Israel, much about their messianic hope and their hopes of going home and the hopes of the one who would come. There was an influence that was left by the exiles among the Babylonians and the Persians who conquered them next. And there is this remnant that is there. And even when they're under the Persians, when Nehemiah and those come home, they don't all come home. There's a group that come home and they rebuild. And so we have that taking us into the New Testament. But there were many that didn't come home. Many that intermarried, many that continued with their worship of the one true God and the memories of their religion and possibly with portions of the scripture, maybe the book of Daniel and other portions of scripture that may have gone into exile with them. So the Magi may have had access to some Old Testament scriptures. We're not really sure, we're not positive about how God revealed to them that the Christ was to be born, and that the Christ was born. But when it happened, they knew. And that's clear from this text. This is not a journey just to meet any old king. They go, oh, we heard a king was born in another country. We'll go see him. Now they're, they're, they're looking for the Christ. They're out to find Jesus. And we're not sure how he revealed it to them. See, in verse 2, he says, We saw a star when it rode. Rose, they were reading astrological signs, somehow knew that this one was a portent of the birth of Christ. In verse 12, we're told they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, that his motives were not pure in wanting to know where Christ was. 
And so they departed another way, but God spoke to them in a dream and directed them home by another way. So maybe prophetic dreams, Old Testament scriptures, astrological portents, dreams, prophetic dreams. But they knew. The star was given, beckoning them west. They knew what it meant. And they set out on a consuming search for Christ. They embarked on this journey. We know journeys in these days have significant obstacles. Travel was not easy like it is today where you can get on a plane and be on the other side of the world or get in your car and travel a couple hundred miles before, you know, the sun sets. These guys set out on on a journey. It always involved great risk. Remember when Nehemiah went, went back from Persia, which is probably, possibly where these guys are coming from, and when Nehemiah was sent back by the Persian emperor, that he sent with him a cavalry escort, a cavalry escort to bring them to uh, cavalry, that's the word, cavalry escort to get them uh, at least into their own territory, to bring them safely there. You remember the good Samaritan a story that the traveler couldn't get it from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho without being waylaid and beaten and robbed. And Travel was a dangerous business. It wasn't good policing and so on. So this is a serious journey. Travel could take months. It would take them through wilds, empty spaces. But they set out through outlaws and hardships and wilderness. And you can throw in, they really didn't know where they were going. They were heading east, a little bit like Abraham. You know, he took him from the place that he was and said, go, you know. And Abraham, not really knowing where he's going and where this was all going to end, he just went. It's an act of faith. And so these guys go, not really sure where they're going to end up. But they knew that a king had been born. The king. A king who was worthy of their worship, of their time, of their extraordinary efforts, of their gifts and of their treasures. They knew a king had been born, and they set upon the road to go find him and to give their worship to him. Let me ask you this Christmas. Is he worthy of your worship? Is he worthy of your time? Is he worthy of your extraordinary efforts? Is he worship of, worthy of your worship and your treasure and the opening of these things to him, your gifts? See, in verse 4, they knew that he was the Messiah. As they arrived and they asked the question of where to find him, they assembled and the question was this, where is the Christ to be born? That was the question that they had come and the question that they get the answer to. Where is the Christ to be born? The hope of the Jews and of the Gentiles, the long-awaited one. And when they get there, when they arrive at the end of our passage, they find him and they discover that his name is Jesus. And they named him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. They discover Jesus. Very specifically, Emmanuel, God who is with us, born of a woman, born as a man, bearing our full humanity, God in the flesh, 
the one who had come, they went looking because he came for them and for us. God spoke flesh and blood, in a sense, into existence in, the, in a body that could bear his divinity. He spoke flesh and blood so that he could bleed and die and bear the burden and pay the penalty of our sins. Right? They discovered Jesus who would save us. The biblical, messianic, saving hope that was set before them was worth risking all, risking the journey and their treasures and everything else. Is the hope set before us? Are we willing to step out of our comfort zone, right? To hit the road a little bit, to risk something, to, to move toward Him, to seek Christ, to worship Him. And, and that's the second thing that we see in these guys, that, um, that they get absolutely right. There are two things we're told about them from the very beginning. You know, Jesus is born, verse 1, in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. They had two things in mind. We know the king has been born. The king has been born. And we have come to worship. To worship Him. These guys from the East, we don't even know who they are. Worship, this word underneath there in the Greek, this proskuneo, uh, this, this word for worship in the Greek, it's so much richer than some of the words we use. It's used in the New Testament, quote from a Bible uh, dictionary. It's used in the New Testament of worship or veneration of a divine or supposedly divine object expressed concretely with the falling face down in the presence of someone, often kissing the ground or kissing the feet. So when it talks about worship, and sometimes we use the word worship, and I've heard lots of teaching on it, and I don't think it's wrong. I just think it, it, it sometimes is a little weak and doesn't help us to see that. When we talk about worship, and it's giving the worth-ship you know, of God. It's, you know, speaking his worth and, 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 and praising his worth kind of a thing. And, and it is that, but it, 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 it's, for me, it's kind of weak because we tend to think then of words, right? It's, it's, it's naming his worth or saying his worth or singing his worth or putting words on it, right? It's out here, but not in this word, right? Here, here this, this idea of worship, which is falling on your face and kissing the feet of, right? Is, there's a picture here of, of utterly yielding yourselves to this one. They didn't come to admire him, to sing, to flatter. They didn't come to talk about prophecies or cool stars or the toughness of their journey. They didn't come for any of these things. It says they literally came to drop on their faces before him and to worship him. To give him his due is to give themselves to him. To prostrate before is, to, is an act of utter submission. To put yourself in their utter power, the power of life and death at the feet of the king, whose word is law, whose word is life and death. We have a hard time understanding this in a country of presidents. You know, I didn't vote for him, right? We just, this, this sense that, this, that we have some choice in the matter, some, the idea of a king in the days of old was so absolute 
Their word was law. Your obedience was absolute. Their word was your life and your death. You gave obedience. And in the presence of the king, you came and you bowed low. And you gave yourself, what is your pleasure? What do you demand of me, O king? These guys came to worship, to drop on their faces. A resignation, a submission, a giving of oneself to be dominated by another. And so to give him our, his worth-ship isn't wrong. It's just we need to understand that what he is worth is our absolute and total surrender and submission and yielding of ourselves to his service and the consecrating of ourselves to him. You know, when wolves fight, they fight until one is ready to submit. And when, when one has dominated the other, the one that is lost rolls on his side and exposes his throat in a posture of utter submission. My life is in your hands. My life and death is yours. Right? I submit. He's dominated by the other. They give over such power to be ruled, giving over the heart to be devoted by the one who is worthy of our worship. Have you rolled on your back and offered Jesus your neck? Have you surrendered? Have you submitted to his lordship to be dominated by him, ruled by him? In verse 11, when they get there, he describes this, right? In verse 11, it says, And going into the house, and they saw the child, the child Jesus, this baby, who's not Herod's son. He's nobody's son of worth. You know, Mary and Joseph, who are these people? But they see the baby. He is the king. They see the child, and it says, They fell down. And they worshipped him. And opening their treasures... They offered him their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh. They offered him their gifts and their treasure. Right? They fell to the ground. And I love that phrase, opening their treasures. They offered their gifts to him. That's worship. I tried to say that last week in a different way if you weren't here. And opening their treasures, they, they offered him their gifts and they worshipped him. people worship King Jesus, they open their treasures and they give him their gifts. It's a sign that all is his, that they've exposed the neck of their life and said, all that I am is yours and under your, your lordship and your rule and your reign. And so they open up to him. It's one thing to praise his glory in our hearts and it's another thing to speak and to sing his praise with our lips and it's a whole another thing to show forth his praise with our lives, with our treasures, with our gifts, and with the fullness of a submission to him. Do you come to worship? What do you come to do on a Sunday morning? Is it about the words? It's a full, it's a giving of ourselves to him afresh. Right, renewing the exposing of our necks again. It's a renewal of our consecration to Him, that He is Lord and King, to go away refreshed in, and, and renewed in that sense of what it means to belong to the King. 
Contrast all of this to Herod and the Pharisees. They give us another couple of responses, don't they? Right in verses 7 and 8, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and he ascertained from them what time this star had appeared. And if you know later in the story, he wanted to know when it was appeared so he'd know how old the kid might be so that he could make sure he doesn't survive. Right? if you know that. And there's a great slaughter that takes place based on this information. What time did the star appear? And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you find him, come, bring me word so I too can come and worship. Herod has no intention of worshiping. Herod is only really interested in protecting himself and his power, why he is king of the Jews. These guys came searching, looking for the king of the Jews, and well, Herod is king of the Jews. He doesn't need another king of the Jews. Sometimes we're a little bit like that. We don't need another king either. I'm doing pretty good ruling myself, making my own decisions, you know, you know building my own kingdom. I, I'm doing pretty well. We don't really need another king. There are many religious people that are like Herod. They, they, they're interested, they're mildly interested in it, you know, and, they, and, and that interest is even somewhat self-interested in knowing about it. They're, they're interested in all of that surrounds it, maybe a good sermon, music, fellowship, but, but there's no real intention of yielding their lives to the king. That's not the underlying intention. Church is fine. You know, these things are fine. They're interested, but they're not going to give themselves in worship. They have no intention of dropping to their knees and getting on their face before him and yielding up their treasures and their gifts to this one. It's just a little sliver, a little slice. Just an hour out of the week or something that, you know, that, that is part of it. You know, they're interested. There's an interest. You know, we can ask some questions and there are some here this morning who may be interested in Christianity, but you are refusing to yield to King Jesus in the most meaningful, life-altering, life-shaping ways. The Pharisees are not much better in verses 4 to 6. They, these guys show up and they're asking about where the, the Messiah is born and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people. They inquire, where is the Christ to be born? And, you know, they know their scriptures. Why in Bethlehem of Judea? You know, it's written in the prophet. Here, let me give you the text. It's back here in Micah, you know, in this obscure portion of, uh, you know, of the minor prophet, and I can show it to you. They know a lot about religion. They know a lot about the Bible. They even know a lot about Messiah. And they can tell you the passage. And they might even be able to debate some of the fine things about it. But they are content with knowing about him. And they do not set out to find him in their personal experience. They are content with knowing about him. I'm reading Knowing a God... Knowing God Again with a couple of guys. It's one of my favorite books along the way that's so formative in my Christian life by J.I. Packer. And I love in the first three or four chapters of it before he gets into who God is and applying that in our lives. But in the first four chapters, he does a great job of kind of laying out and challenging us the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And the nature of a personal relationship. That it isn't just our personal relationship. What is the nature of a personal relationship and whether we actually have one with God? We know a lot about God, but do we know Him in our personal experience? Love Him and walk with Him and worship Him and 
trust in him and reach out to him and depend upon him and listen to him and obey him. And there's a lot of church people that have, are religious and knowledgeable, but they remain complacent and distant and immobile. They know where to look for him, basically, you know, but they're not really on the hunt. They're not really on the search. They're not really on the quest. They're not really on the road after Jesus. They've not really fallen on their face or opened their treasures. They're content with knowing about him. Maybe you grew up knowing about him, and you know a lot about the Bible, or you know a lot about it. It's not the same as knowing him and loving him and walking with him. Let us not make the mistake of being interested in knowing a lot about it, but failing to worship. And that's where we learn so much from, from these guys who come from afar. All these guys are the local homeboys. They know right where to find him. But the local homeboys are sometimes the ones that's so familiar to them and they think they know so much that they haven't really figured out or realized that they don't really know him. They're not really walking with him. And these guys come from afar. And sometimes it is those who come from the outside and come from afar and discover Jesus for themselves. And their lives are transformed and they fall on their faces. So the promise and the worship, finally we close with the idea of this journey that they took. Because everyone has to make the journey to Jesus for themselves. Your parents can't make the journey to Jesus for you. It's a journey that you must take up. You've seen their journey and you've been a part of it in a sense and, and you've walked along and seen the journey, but for everyone, whether you're a child in here, a teenager, or whether you're someone who's been in church your whole life, the day comes when you have to make that journey, when you have to follow the wise men onto the road and to go after Jesus. Not just once either. It's something that continues over our lifetime. We should always be in a sense, seeking after Jesus, you know, entering onto the dangers and the risks of the road to go after him. And some of us have started well, or we start well, but we get distracted. There are a lot of different amusements along the road. A lot of little, you know, exit sign, that, you know, attraction this direction. Um, and so we pull off to see what it's all about. And then we end up spending how, you know, sometimes years off track. We forget there is a cost to go and to really worship Jesus, to devote ourselves to Christ. Abraham left his home completely. The fishermen left their nets. The tax collector left his booth. The wise men entered out onto the dangers of the road. His disciples could later honestly claim as they're handling some of this with Jesus, hey, Jesus, we have left everything. I wonder sometimes as we read these things, and even for myself, can I say that? On that day when I stand with him, can, I, can, can we say to him, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you, to enter onto the road of coming after you. The promise and the calling is big enough, powerful enough to detach us from the things that are holding us back, to disconnect our, us from our selfish lives, to bring us out onto the road again this Christmas, to set us questing after Jesus, journeying in pursuit of Him. Could you say this morning that you are pursuing 
Jesus. That you are on a quest to know him and to serve him and to honor him with your whole life. That you're on a quest to know that you know that you know him. Packer talks in the beginning of his book about a guy, he said he was, he was a man who had, was a conservative teaching in a liberal seminary and at some point um, they, they, they drove him out. And so this guy who is now without a job and a livelihood, he's been driven out and he was talking to, to Dr. Packer and, um, and makes sim- the simple comment, uh, it doesn't matter. In the end, I have known him, and they haven't. And he talked about just the way that that impacted him, just that simple statement, the simple assurance, the simple everything else in life in in context of that statement that I've known him, and they haven't. Do you know him? Can you say that? I have known him. And everything else, in a sense, doesn't really matter. Everything else is in perspective. You're tired of being Herod, pretending to be interested, or Pharisees knowing a whole lot about it, but never really going after them yourself, personally. Not worshiping on your face. Paul says in Philippians 3, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on. To the goal for the prize. For the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says, I am straining toward what is ahead. I press on to the goal, the call. Paul says, I'm on the road. It's it's the Hebrews 12 to run the race that he he is after Jesus. It's the one thing he says he does. Is it the one thing you do? Whatever else you're doing, you know, whatever else we do in life is the one thing that we are certainly doing, pressing on toward the high call of knowing, loving, and walking with Jesus. Do you believe that every other pursuit is insignificant compared to this? Do you know that nothing in life is as important as this? I appreciate brothers, even in, even in these, these weeks, and then when, when life gets crazy, that, that, that the counsel that we give each other is this, right? Look to your own soul. Right? Go get with Jesus. Go fall on your face and know him. Go let your perspective, right, be saturated with, with this. Will you take up the pursuit? Will you take to the road? Go after Jesus and give yourself to him seriously, passionately, practically. Wise men, wise women make this journey. And they make it the most important thing in their lives. The driving purpose, whatever else you're doing, hit the road. Follow the star. Go after Jesus. And really worship him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. Thank you for these wise men whom you raised up and you gave them the promise of the Messiah. We thank you for the example of their faith that they would hit the road and take the risk and make the effort and to go after Jesus. We thank you for the hearts of worship that you gave them that would drive them 
to their knees before Jesus to open their treasures and their gifts and to love him and give themselves to him. Father, teach us to be on the road, to leave our comfort zone, to step out from those things that are holding us back and to know that whatever else we are doing, the one thing we do this Christmas, help us to get back on the road to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.